0: Well, just keep your Bibles open at that uh, little section we've just read together. And if you were looking very carefully as we were listening to it read, you'll notice that Jesus is at the heart of the narrative. In many ways, this little section of uh, John's gospel is composed like a sandwich. Sandwich. can't really say it in American, but you know what I mean. A sandwich, two bits with something in the middle. So the woman... Is at both ends. She's the top and the bottom of the, of the narrative. Both the woman in, uh, at the beginning, her impact, the impact of her words at the end. And then in the inside, there's an explanation that explains the, the beginning and the end, the top and the bottom of the sandwich, if you like. <laughs> Not a very good illustration after all, is it really? But you get the idea. So there's the woman, and there's the woman, and there's the disciples. That's basically the outline of the book. The woman is really. Uh, there to serve the interests of our focus being on the Lord Himself. Now, our Lord, let me fill you in in the background, has, has introduced this woman of Samaria, and both of those elements of that description are absolutely vital to your understanding. That Jesus gives to a woman this significant role in the unfolding and explanation of who He is is absolutely foundational which I think should lay an axe to the root of all those uh, the tree of all those who are particularly uh, dismissive of the women in our churches or women generally, this is a great challenge. Our Lord is an example of how women ought to be treated, and he treats this woman with great dignity. Uh, his disciples, however don 't get quite get that point, as you will see in a moment she 's a woman of Samaria, that means that she 's a woman who effectively, basically belongs to another religious group. And so she's an outsider. She's not a Jew. She's an outsider. So she's an outsider, and she's a bit of a problem as far as uh, the moral case against her is concerned as well. So our Lord has been introducing this woman, this woman of Samaria, to profound theology. We started at verse 24 in order to put that in its context. Profound theology. It's very... This is higher than he said anything that Jesus has said to his disciples so far. This is more than Jesus has said to any Jews so far in his introduction of himself. You know, there is, just in passing, there there is nothing here in this story that adds any weight to that usual kind of evangelistic approach we have that the outsider need something so simplistic and basic if they're going to understand and believe. Jesus apparently did not subscribe to that point of view. Here he is talking to a complete outsider. She doesn't know the most of the Hebrew scriptures. She doesn't know anything really from the end of uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and yet Jesus freely quotes from those pits as he's speaking to her because, of course, he's addressing us as well through addressing her he introduces her to deep theology he takes us into the very nature of god that god is spirit not only that but as we saw last time he also gives us her an insight into the trinity of god that we are to worship god the god who is there as father through the spirit and in truth And although she couldn't put it all together, and probably the disciples hearing this repeated by the woman to him, to them, perhaps afterwards in these two days they spent with the Samaritans after this event, it probably made no sense to them either. But Jesus has been communicating this to this woman. It's an amazing revelation. We keep coming back to it. The church keeps quoting it. The church keeps studying it because it is such an important insight into the nature of of God. Well, the woman, having been confronted with this high theology, reaches out. I think she's reaching out to the truth. Notice what she says in verse 25. The woman said to him, and I think this is a a statement designed to tease out of Jesus more of what he's doing here and why he's speaking to her, the thing that surprised her right at the very beginning. She says to him, I know that Messiah, the Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. The Christ is in Greek. The Messiah is actually the Hebrew word. And it's interesting that she should use this expression because she's not a Jew. And as a Samaritan, of course, she is not thinking of a Messiah in the way a Jew would think of the Messiah. The Jew thought of a Messiah as the anointed king in the line of David, in the Davidic line. She expected a Messiah equivalent called the Taheb, who was a prophet like Moses. You remember Moses predicted this in Deuteronomy. God says to him, I will raise up a prophet like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to them all that I command him. And in the, in the Creed of the Samaritans, the fifth article in the Samaritan Creed was that God was going to send A taheb, a prophet like Moses. But she uses the Jewish word Messiah here. Maybe she's translating for Jesus the way I translate for you from English into what you speak. Uh, She was doing that for Jesus. She was saying, you know, you maybe don't know the word taheb, so I'll use the word you're familiar with. The word Messiah. And uh, that was good. Now, what were they expecting? What was in her mind when she uses this word Messiah? I've said they expected a prophet like Moses. Therefore, they expected a prophet who would teach them the law. And in many ways, Jesus fit that profile in her experience of him. Using this Jewish title and calling him the Messiah, she says this. She says that when the Messiah comes, the Taheb comes, he will teach them all things. Now, why why does she say that? Well, she says that because Jesus has just told her something that she knows is mind-blowing. It's an amazing thing. It's a theological heavyweight subject that Jesus has just introduced. And she, she senses in what Jesus is saying, whether she understands everything that's involved in what he has said, that he is teaching something that is, that is taking her further and taking everybody further into the nature of God. He's taking them further, closer to the truth. And so she says, when the Messiah comes, He will teach us all things. It's almost like making a statement that requires Jesus to make a response to the statement. It's as if she's saying to Him, this sounds very like what the Messiah will do when the Messiah comes. He will lead us into all truth. In fact, she has come so close to the truth that Jesus doesn't correct her, doesn't modify in any way her statement, but he takes what she says, accepts what she says as true in as far as it goes, and spells out the whole truth for her in this very clear way. Look at this at verse. 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, ego, I me, is the Greek, I, I am. He could not have been more direct here. In the first place, while he is normally, in fact, Jesus never accepts the title Messiah, When he's with the Jews. Not because he's not the Messiah. But because the word was loaded with political significance. When the Jews used it. So therefore he avoids using the Messiah word. And you remember his favorite phrase for himself. Was the son of man. Coming from Daniel chapter 7. But while he's not prepared to take it from the Jews. Because of its political elements. He is prepared to receive it unqualified from this Samaritan woman and then in the second place not only does he receive the title she's used of him he goes further and he introduces himself to her with this divine formula she would be familiar with this it came from Exodus Exodus was one of those books of the Old Testament that she would have understood and recognized because the Samaritans accepted them as the Word of God you remember that famous account where God introduces himself to Moses. And in the Greek, the Greek rendering of that passage, the words ego, I me, the words Jesus uses here in Greek, are the words that are to be found. I, I am. And this designation has a solemn, sacred function in both Old and New Testament. And even, by the way, in pagan Greek religious writing. In John's gospel, here this phrase or this expression is sometimes used in an absolute sense, without a predicate. For example, in John eight twenty four, unless you come to believe that ego imi I am, you will surely die in your sins. Or John eight twenty eight, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that ego imi I am. And in John 8:58, before Abraham even came into existence, ego I me, I am. Sometimes the words ego I me are connected to some messianic prophecy of what the Messiah would be or do. Ego I me, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. Ego I me, I am the bread from heaven. Ego I me, I am the good shepherd. Ego I me, I am the water of life. In other words, all of these things the Messiah was to do and to be, they're captured and they're, they're grasped by the Lord Jesus to himself. What does he say to her? I who speak to you, I am, I, I am. Everything to do with salvation can be described. All its expectations are connected to Him. He is their subject. He is their object. He is their fulfillment. He is their truth. I, I am. But we can go further. Given the use of this expression in the gospel, this gospel, John, and the introduction to Jesus in chapter 1, We have to take this expression as Jesus uses it here in its absolute sense. That is, that speaking to this Samaritan woman who is familiar only with the first five books of the Bible, he is using it in the only sense this woman knows. That is, she only knows this expression in the way in which it's used in the book of Exodus, where it is the designation, it is the name that God gives to Moses. You remember that great event at the burning bush and God reveals himself to Moses in the bush and he comes and he speaks to Moses and tells him to take his sandals off and to remember its holy ground and God addresses him and and sends him, tells him he's sending him back to Egypt to deliver the people of God and Moses says, well, whom shall I say sent me? God says, I am that I am. What is he saying there? He is saying, go back to these people. He says this. God says this to, uh, to Moses. Yahweh says this to Moses. Tell them, I am is sending you. Ego, I mean, I, I am is sending you to them. This woman was right to a degree to understand that the Messiah would be a prophet and a teacher of the law. But he was more... He was more in Jesus' underlining, underscoring this. He is making this unequivocal revelation that He is Yahweh, that He is Jehovah, that He is the Lord, that He is the Creator of Israel, that He is the Lord of hosts, that He is the Holy One of Israel. He is I Am. And do you see, He is making this revelation, first of all, to a woman an outsider and a stranger. Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is Jesus. And the identity of the Messiah, the one sent by the Father and the way of salvation that he brings in all the other offices that he occupies and the whole process by which people come to God and through whom uh, come to know God as he's manifested in Jesus is all tied up with this revelation. He is the Messiah promised to the Jews. He is the Messiah from the Jews. He is the Messiah for the Samaritans as well as for the Jews. That's why the church has to teach from the whole Bible and not simply concentrate on a few gospel texts if it's going to correctly and cogently and coherently present the Messiah to the world. You need the whole Bible, really, to get to know who Jesus is. Well, so much for the woman and Jesus' revelation to her. Well, you can always depend on the church to spoil the party. And at least on this occasion, we find the church, that is, the disciples arriving, and instantly there's an atmosphere change. You could cut it with a knife. They're very possessive of Jesus. They're pretty annoyed to find that he hasn't had the nap they'd hoped he would have while they went to get some food. And they're disturbed by this woman, him talking to this woman. The disciples came back. Let me read it to you. They marveled. That's not a good word. We'll look at that in a moment. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? Actually, the word marvel means they were shocked. It's in the imperfect that indicates it was more than just a momentary surprise. They knew they were, they continue to be stunned by the fact that Jesus was talking to this woman. They just couldn't get their heads around that they'd come back. And here was Jesus alone in public talking to a woman in public in this context it was it was mind-blowing for these chaps sorry men they were shocked but they knew better they knew better than to ask the Lord what he wanted from her or why he was speaking to her so no one said what do you seek why were you talking to her that's not saying they weren't thinking that that's in there so that you know that John knew what they were all thinking. That's what they really would have liked to have asked Jesus, but they didn't ask Jesus. They'd learned, you see. They'd learned not to question him about these things. They seemed to pick up, you see, that their questions were not his questions and that their hang-ups were not his problem. That whatever was on their mind, you can see that the atmosphere immediately changes. With their arrival, the woman took that as a signal for her to leave. The woman left her water jar and went away into town. Now, why did she leave her water jar? Why does John put that in there? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't say it was for a practical reason. She wasn't thirsty anymore. Or she left it so Jesus could use it. He doesn't say any of those things. I think, therefore, what we have to do is we have to get the answer from the passage. We've got to get the answer from the passage, and the answer of the passage is this. Jesus has been talking to her about the water of life. He's persuaded, been persuading her that she needed what he alone could give to her. She has become persuaded that he is a prophet sent from God, and she has now just received this revelation that he is the Messiah. The reason she leaves the water jar is that that water is no longer what she needs. She has found what she ultimately needs. She has found the water of life. She has found ultimate satisfaction. She's found what Jesus was talking about. And you say, prove that. And I say to you, look at what happens next. She goes back to her town and she says to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Messiah? Do you see what struck her? What struck her by her encounter with Jesus is both his knowledge of her, thorough knowledge of her, and in particular his statement that he is the Messiah. She is utterly involved in her testimony to Jesus although she's still very much in control of her own uh, approach, rather than make an assertion to the men of her town, she asks the question, listen, this man knows everything there is to know about me. He knew without having to ask any questions, without interviewing anybody. This man has knowledge that nobody, no human being could have. This is supernatural knowledge. Could this be? Could this be? She is so persuasive that they are convinced that she is dead serious. I mean, this woman was not a popular woman, at least not among the women. But she, she is so persuasive that the people in the town, do you notice in verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. She is an outstanding witness, this woman. An outstanding witness. Because a miracle has occurred in her life. She has met Jesus. She has met one man who was not in it to get something from her. One man in all the encounters she had had with men who was not out to rob her of anything or use her for his own satisfaction. One man who had come to give generously the water of life to her. And it's as if the Holy Spirit came to this woman and said in her heart what the Holy Spirit says in our hearts, who comes to us and he says to you as a sinner, will you as a sinner have this man to be your Savior and your Lord? And she had said, yes, I want him as my Savior and as my Lord. This woman gives a clear testimony to the one who had come to that well in Samaria looking for a worshiper for his father. And he'd found her. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's what Jesus does. Now in the middle of the segment, we have the disciples back at the well. Meanwhile, back at the well. Here's this interesting exchange taking place which has all the indications of an eyewitness account. And once again, we're confronted by human blindness to the work and the will of God. You know, if you... If you look at the previous chapters and, and read them again to here, you'll notice this happens a few times. Jesus says something and people don't understand him. I will raise this temple in three days, he said. They respond, it took 46 years to build this temple. They just didn't get it. You must be born again, he said. Oh, how can a man be born, enter into his mother's womb again, and be born again? He says to the woman, I will give you living water. She says to him, You don't have a bucket. He says to his disciples, I have footy you know not of. They turn around and they say to each other, Who brought him a McDonald's sandwich? They don't get it over and over again. People don't get it. Jesus says something, they don't get it. At the beginning, When he talked to the woman, what he meant by water and what she meant were two different things. And so here that is what the disciples meant by food and what he meant by food were worlds apart. And even when he tells them this clearly, when he says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They still think, insist on thinking on their own categories. And you see how ridiculous they are when they start talking to each other. Okay, they don't talk to him, they talk to each other. The disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Duh, I mean. This is an example of a phenomenon we find throughout John's Gospel where the disciples keep misunderstanding Jesus until the resurrection and the Spirit come. They don't understand his words. That doesn't mean he gave up on them. He kept on teaching them, instructing them. He he deliberately put the stuff in there so that when the Spirit came, the Spirit could draw it out again then Jesus makes it quite clear. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's telling them that what gave him the greatest meaning, the deepest fulfillment, the highest joy was to complete the mission the father had given to him. This mission, this gift, this goal set before him determined his whole existence. This aim is both, notice, his father's will And the Father's work, it is both the plan of God and the accomplishment of salvation. This is what Jesus has in His mind. He comes as the Word of God and He says to His disciples, I am sustained from beginning to end by the work of God and by finishing the work of God. To use the language of Hebrews, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What was the joy set before Him? We see it demonstrated in this passage. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. Well, what was the will of Him who sent Him? The will of God was that Jesus should give eternal life to men and women. In chapter 6, verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. Or John 12, the Father who sent me, has himself given me a commandment. And I know that his commandment, that is his will, is eternal life. Or these words, John 17, this is eternal life. That those who know you, uh, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, you have given him authority over whole flesh that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. The will of God was that Jesus give eternal life to people. How was he going to do that? Well, he was to go do that by going to the cross. The mission was to go to the cross, to be crucified, dead and buried and raised on the third day, in order that a woman, of Samaria, might have eternal life. A father, the Son, the spirit, conspiring together to produce worshippers of the Father involving the work of the Son. And that's the basis then for the metaphor that Jesus now uses to His men. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Perhaps they lifted up their eyes and they looked beyond Jesus and they saw coming down because we've already been... Clued into what's been happening. Verse thirty: They went out of the town and were coming to him. As, Jesus, as they speak to Jesus, they see these people coming to him. As they lift up their eyes and they look at the fields, they see in the fields the white robes of the people coming down the hill to Jesus. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's saying to the men that he is so free, so sovereign. He's not at all dependent on the normal rules of life. He's not dependent on the usual four months it takes between sowing and reaping. He collapses sowing and reaping into one event because God can do that kind of thing that you and I can't do. The prophet Amos said, Prophesy, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the ploughman, the sower, shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will flow with it. Jesus is saying to his disciples that this is the beginning of those days. He's saying to the disciples, I am the Messiah, I bring the messianic age. It has begun with me, and already I am reaping eternal life. I've spoken to this woman. And already, you can see that is going to be eternal life, that the sower and the reaper might rejoice together. He's collapsing, sowing, and reaping together in one event as a foretaste of the joy that Amos talked about and that they were going to experience. And so Jesus concludes by saying to the disciples, I want to draw you into this work This work involves this. One sows, another reaps. I send you now to reap. Here they come. See them coming towards you. Now it's your job. You go talk to them. You minister to them. You meet them. You speak to them. You do the reaping. You get to be part of this great work. But know this. Others did the work first. Who were the others? Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus has been sowing with his word in the heart of this woman in this eternal life now. And now he's reaping the harvest. The woman has gone back to her village. She has sown the word of God in the hearts of her townspeople. And so when we turn to the third part of the story, Jesus and the Samaritans, we find that is their testimony. They are coming to Jesus because of the testimony Of the woman and the testimony of Jesus. In fact, we find that Jesus waits there. He stays with them for two days and many more believe because of his word. So many believe because of her word and then many more believe because of his word and so because of the testimony of the woman and the testimony of the master, many others are coming into the kingdom of God. Others have labored. And who are the laborers? In this story, it's Jesus. And a Samaritan woman and the disciples are reaping what they sowed. What they sowed leads to one of the great insightful statements in all the Bible about the nature of the mission of Jesus in the world. He stays in this Samaritan village. Many people come to believe in Him, savingly come to believe in Him. And it's these Samaritans who get their heads around this big idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that uh, today there are many sores and reapers, many of us in ordinary conversation in the way we talk to our friends and use opportunities that come naturally in the flow of life. Sow the seed of your truth in people's minds. Often we don't see that bring forth fruit. Often someone else has to come along at some other juncture in their life and sow another seed or water it. But we thank you that somewhere in the world somebody is reaping a harvest that we have sown that we don't know anything of. And one day, when the harvest is brought home, the sowers and the reapers will enjoy and rejoice together that there is a great harvest for the kingdom of God. Would you encourage us, Lord, in our little small corner, just to be who we are and to speak what we can believing that you can use that to complete your gospel harvest. We pray in Jesus' name.